You've seen me do this before, please, no more. Uh, here at Bergen Park Church, we've been talking about founders. Well, first of all, I'm really touched by that affirmation, whatever. But um, we're talking about founders, and uh, we, we do this to honor people because this is not the Jim show, not the Barb show, not the DeMolar show, but uh, really people have teamed together over these last 20 plus years to, uh, to honor God uh, in the home, the community, and the world. Uh, and uh, also to do it to give you a challenge and maybe a dream that uh, serving God uh, and building his body is really good work. And we invite you to take part and you're going to find that this message also sort of urges you into that work. There are several what we call newer founders among us who are so involved but haven't got the longevity. And so I'm just going to mention these last names. If you know these people in, in this church, you know that they are not just deeply involved, not in church work, but in the work of Jesus Christ here at Bergen Park Church, which, which spreads throughout the world. So I have to mention the Caps, Ken and Christy, the Rileys, Tim and Liesel, and the Rogers, uh, Ryan and Katie, who uh, <clears throat> uh, the whole transition process and coming into our new facility would not have happened without this uh, young couple who are now expecting their fourth child. So <laughs> God bless you all. Uh, <clears throat> I've never retired before. And sitting in the audience are two of my siblings who are wondering, when did you start working? Uh, <laughs> but I've, I've never retired before, so it remains one of those situations that's in process, that it's still developing. And all I know, Barb and I together, is that uh, we are very busy up until the 1st of January, and then we're going to sort of explore what God has next. But the next four months are... Uh, pretty well solved for us. Um, so sometimes when you do not know how things are going to turn out or what is coming next, how do you spend your time? Some of these situations can cause anxiety and fear. You're up at night. Others keep you up because of the hope of such high expectations of what's about to happen. I want to give you a, a warning this morning. As I open the Bible... It is a dangerous thing, not just to read your Bible, but if you read, interpret, apply, and pray over it as you read it, your life may be in grave danger of massive change. 
And the passage I'm reading today is one that affected me about 10 years ago. Joan, this is for us, okay, as we did this one together in 2010. And as, as I read it, it, it came out of my daily Bible reading. And it, it perked my attention. I said, what is going on here? This cannot be. So it, as I got deeper into it, thought about it, I realized that God was sort of pulling my leg in his language that was used in the book of Ruth. So I want you to understand that if you take time to think about it, your view of God may be changing and your life may take a sharp turn for the better, going down God's direction. And it all hinges on these three words as it happens. The book of Ruth is a tale of grace. God moves towards the fulfillment of his plan involving some very undeserving and unaware people. They don't know what he's doing. And I like that. So why does God bring Ruth into the center of his plan for humanity? I don't know. We never told. But we have some clues. You see, the story of Ruth starts with a man and his wife, and they have two boy children, but there's a famine in, 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 in Israel, so they move to a neighboring country. They leave this area, tribal area of Judah, and they go to a place called Moab, not Moab, Utah, Moab, Middle East. Uh, <clears throat> so there's no tourists that like going to that Moab. Uh, as they go there, uh, their boys grow up, they marry foreign women, women who do not worship Jehovah. The sons grow up then, and as uh, they have their wives, they have no children. Now the husband dies. And then the two sons die, leaving three women in a very deep predicament. The widowed mother is Naomi, and her name means pleasant, but there's very little pleasant about her as you read this book. Uh, the other two are the... Uh, foreign daughters-in-law who have probably come to uh, understand who the Lord God Jehovah is, but who are beginners in it. So you have Naomi, Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, because Oprah got her name from a misspelling of Orpah, okay, and Ruth, who we do know. And as widows, understand, they have no legal protection, no uh, rights under the law. They have no legal standing for an inheritance. They have no male children. So therefore, they have no future in that culture and no ongoing hope. Life circumstances have removed any dreams of opportunity for Ruth and for these two other ladies. But I want you to know that no circumstance can take away God's destiny for you. So Naomi decides, hey, it's time to return. Let's go back to Bethlehem and Judah. And as she and her family uh, are still there, I mean, as her family is still there, her land is, is still there. And so the famine is over, crops are growing, and she goes and her two daughters-in-law go with her. But Naomi looks back at them and she goes, you know, this is good for me and right for me. I don't think it's very good for you two. Some bad things could happen to you. You would be better off by going home and starting all over again to your original families here in Moab. So after thinking it over, the one, the one that we do not know much about, says, you know, you're right. And she returns. 
But uh, Ruth does not. So here we are, and, and Naomi looks at Ruth one more time. She goes, please, please, please go back. And Ruth looks at her, and these are some of the greatest words in all of Scripture. Uh, she says to her, now again, this is her mother-in-law. This is often used at weddings, not to mother-in-laws. Uh, Do not ask me to leave. Now I'm using the King James. It's very beautiful. Do not ask me to leave thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people will be my people, and thy God my God. And where thou diest, I will die. And there I will be buried. And the Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. That is one determined Ruth. And she has thrown in her lot with her mother-in-law. So together they start that journey. And I imagine Naomi, you know, this isn't in the scripture, but I imagine she uses that famous phrase we use today. Well, all righty then. <laughs> you know, I can't stop you, so let's make the most of it. They return. And Ruth, uh, as they get settled in, Ruth says, well, Mom, I'm sort of responsible now. I'm the younger one, and I, uh, I'm responsible to make a living to make sure that we are taken care of. So there is this, re, uh, this custom in the Old Testament uh, where the poor can work for a, uh, not, not for money, but they can work for food. And what they do is it's called gleaning. When a uh, crop is harvested, the idea is that the owner of the land is not to make sure that every little grain is picked up. But he's to leave some behind for the poor. And the poor then are welcome to come in without even asking permission. Welcome to come in and pick up what's left behind. So Ruth decides to start her new life in Bethlehem by gleaning. And goes to the field and begins picking up the leftovers. And that is where the excitement of this passage of this book begins. We are looking at something that is totally humanly unplanned. And there's three words there that just opens it all up. So to describe the next chapter of Ruth, we are also describing the plan of God for the entire world. You see, the field that she shows up to and, and glean in is that of a relative of Naomi, but she doesn't know it. And it's an older man who's the owner, and his name is Boaz, and he's a, I guess you call him a spinster, never appears to have been married. And it says this in verse 3 of Ruth chapter 2. As it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Well, Elimelech has died, so that means Boaz and Elimelech were cousins or some, some sort of uh, relationship there. But notice those first three words, as it happened. As it happened. In other words, we don't know. Uh, it's chance. This just happens to be the field that she shows up in, and lo and behold, it's owned by Boaz. And we believe that. We don't believe there was any contriving or, or scheming behind the scenes. So Boaz shows up once the harvest is in place. It's the earliest harvest called the barley harvest. And he sees her, not knowing who she is, and he asks, who is this who's gleaning? 
And the foreman tells him it's Ruth, whom Boaz knows about, but has not yet met. Excuse me, I have a spit tab here. I gotta. Okay. Uh, cancer is a terrible thing. So uh, her willingness to to glean and and care for Naomi. Uh, convinces Boaz that this is a woman of fine character. And I want to say this. Uh, for those of you who are in, in the hunt, you're looking at future spouses, or those of you who have been hunted and found, <laughs> what is most attractive? Is it the face, the body, some say a sense of humor? Or is it the character that really makes a person shine? He understands this is a woman of character and he sees a beauty in her that is not physical, but of the soul. So he gives her more food. He demands that she glean only in his field and he promises her protection from all the riffraff of, 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 the, of the harvesters. And before the harvest is over, he hires her for full wages. So... Before she leaves, Boaz then speaks this blessing to her. And it's sort of foretelling what's about to happen. I'm reading from Ruth uh, chapter 2, verse 12. May the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Is that beautiful or what? May the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully. Now you decide. What does that really mean? You see, we're looking at something that you have to admit was humanly unplanned. But heavenly, we understand that God is at work, and this foretells about what God is going to do. He is moving in his eternal and divine purposes, and he's ahead of humans, asking humans to join in in the midst of it all. Now, I can say this, and so can you, for those of you who know the story of Ruth, because we know how the story develops and also how it ends. Ruth uh, goes to Boaz one night during that harvest, and she places her feet while he is asleep, she places herself at his feet. Now, you might say, that's really weird, but it's a, it is a practice uh, of the Old Testament. Uh, what she does is she apparently uncovers her feet, comes up beside his feet because to come to his side would be immoral, comes under his feet and puts the cover back over. And as she does that, she is saying, I am asking to come under your protection, Boaz. She's proposing to him. It's a, Judy, uh, a, a Jewish Sadie Hawkins day. And Boaz, as he wakes up and realizes what's going on and hears the story, he realizes, you know, this is complicated. It's a complicated issue. It just doesn't happen. But he agrees with Ruth. And like Naomi, he says, well, all righty then. And off they go. That's not there in the Hebrew, okay? It's not in the Hebrew. He praises her for her love for Naomi. That's her character. And he praises her that she did not seek out just a bunch of younger men. And then he tells her, please wait. Wait, because there's somebody first in line before me who is a closer relative who has the choice of accepting you as his wife. You don't even know him. 
And off it goes into this great uh, description of what it means to have a kinsman redeemer. But the, the way that Boaz describes the situation to this closer relative, the relative says, by marrying Ruth, I will lose uh, the, the, the uh, option of, uh, not the option, the, uh, the right of inheritance to my, my own children. And he goes, that's not the position I'm in. So he says, I have to back off. And Boaz, well, let's see, who's second in line? Oh, me! And he said, okay, if it's okay with you, I will become first in line. You know, I, I imagine there's this, well, I'm not sure I want to do it, but, you know, it's the right thing to do. You know. But all the while, Boaz is so excited inside. The kinsman redeemer, the first in line, backs out. Boaz steps in. They marry. They have a child. He is a son. Boaz dies, probably. And, but when Boaz dies, he leaves an heir. And their line continues. And what a line. You see, that's all what's happening humanly. But it says at the end of Ruth, chapter 4, it says, Boaz and Ruth was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. See, out of this foreign woman comes a king of Israel. Not a king, but the greatest king of Israel. And as they look back, you know, David, tell me your lineage. And he goes all the way back, these great Jewish women and these great Jewish men. And oh, there's Ruth, who was a Moabitess. I keep telling my kids, do you realize that um, uh, David was one-eighth Gentile and you were one-quarter Albanian? That means nothing, but I just like to throw that out, okay? But more than that, Ruth is the example of a devoted woman who models how to love your mother-in-law as yourself. Not just your neighbor, but love your mother-in-law as yourself. And then uh, learns through her life with Boaz how to love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now that's the beginning, but now there's greater historical uh, significance because Matthew 1.1 says this is the record, of, the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In other words, this foreign woman is in the line of Jesus Christ. A Gentile woman is a great ancestor of Israel's greatest king and of the king of kings. All because this woman was not too proud to do the work of the poor and not too meek to seek the acceptance of Boaz's legal covering and her proposal to him. As it happened. Friends, there's something in here that's not just about how people act, but how God acts. And there's two principles I want to share with you this morning that are so key to our theology. And I, I want you to know, I, as I share these, this is the good news. I've also experienced some of the bad news in my life, which I'll get to. But this is some really good news. In our normal lives that we live, uh, we probably are not conscious of how God is moving throughout the world. But we understand that our God is always at work. Jesus said this to, uh, to the religious leaders of his day. 
he had to say it to them because they were complaining about him doing miracles on the Sabbath. God doesn't work on Saturday. That's essentially what they're saying. And Jesus responds to them, oh yeah, yes he does. My father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. God does not take vacations. And so because his father is work, he also would be working. And we have to understand that God loves to use unpretentious people as, and, and use them in his work as a specialty. So he's working now in people throughout the world. He's working also in you, not just throughout the world, but he's working in you even though you may not see it. He is always at work. And Ruth could only see to her son as the fulfillment of God's blessing. But God could see beyond her son, Obed, to Jesse and to David and to Jesus Christ himself. And he can see beyond to the end of time. So God's son, Jesus, has Ruth to thank in a, in a, in a small way. And he has her to thank for her devotion to her mother-in-law and her willingness to do humble work to help her out as it happened. Second principle, that God is good. Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. We understand that God will always move and do his work according to his character. And God is inwardly, totally, 100% uh, good in all that he does. Now, I got to say this in the midst of a, 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 of a couple hesitancies. First of all, not only is God good, but he's also the judge. And believe me, when I sin, um, I am aware that there are consequences. Um, I have lied, I have cheated, I have stolen. And you know what? I get caught just about every time. I don't like it. I'd like to say I'd stop it. I'm trying to. But God is still good and does not give up on me in the midst of that. Um, secondly, let me say that some of you are experiencing some of the worst seasons of your entire life right now. You look at your life and you say, this ain't good. What are the alternatives? What else can I try? A pastor that I was reading recently was telling the story of his eight-year-old daughter who was far more advanced than he was. Um, his eight-year-old reading a, a, a book that he read when he was uh, 12. She was eight and she was getting it. But the book was all about war and combat and death and evil people and sorcery and all that. And the daughter says, I don't like this. I think I'm going to put it away. But the dad had read the book. And because he knows where it's going, he looked at her and said, now, keep reading. Opened it back up, gave it to her. Keep reading. You're going to like the ending. Keep reading. Keep loving. Keep doing the right things. Be prepared for as, uh, be prepared for an as it happens type of experience. And, and understand that as you live that way, you will discover that there's a lot of people who don't share that perspective. We, we, we call them worldviews. And there are alternatives to believing that God is working all the time for good all the time. Uh, one of the 
worldviews that's out there. People don't use the word much anymore. But it's called deism, meaning God is not really involved with human activity. He created the world. And after he made it, he went on a permanent vacation. And he's not coming back. That's deism. And it basically says, you know, you have this wonderful world to take care of, but you are on your own. There's another worldview that a lot of people are believing in right now because there's almost 535 million to be distributed. And that's the, the, the idea of chance. Chance through the lotto or chance through all sorts of things. Now, there's good luck and there's bad luck. But the idea under, when we live under the worldview of just chance, we understand that there's no control. Life is full of random things that are both good luck and bad luck. But you have no way of influencing them. So you just take it as it comes. There's another worldview that involves what we call fate. And fate means there's no real goodness in the world. Uh, your life is predetermined, but not necessarily leading to anything spectacular. Uh, about 10 years ago, a, a film that describes modern Hindu philosophy uh, came out called Slumdog Millionaire. And I saw it and I loved it. I loved it. It's about a, 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 an untouchable class youth. Uh, who is, uh, because he's untouchable, never got an education. He brings tea to the people who are educated. But he somehow, through skullduggery, he finds himself a contestant on the Indian version of who wants to be a millionaire. And the first question that's asked him, he understands, you know, I know the answer to that because of an experience I had as a child. And so the whole show up until the very last question continues. And every question he is asked, he goes, I've never studied it, but I know the answer. I know the answer because of this experience, this experience, and this experience. He calls it fate. He wins. And at the end, they do that great Indian dance, which I just love, okay. So it's called fate, but fate can work both ways. And understand that the way you live, the choices you make, have no effect on how your life will turn out. Now, our worldview is one of a God who, one of the words we use for him is he's provident. There is providence in the world, meaning there's unceasing sovereign activity. That God is the sovereign himself. And this God works all things together for good. Because it is his nature to be good. Who is our God? As you think of as it happens experiences in your life, who is our God? Our God is one who is overflowing with goodness. As it happens, this wonderful things, uh, this wonderful thing happens uh, to Ruth, and, and more happens even after she's gone that she does not get to see in her life. His plan will always be for goodness. And the goodness may touch others beyond you because it's not really always about you. Secondly, this God upholds creation by his providence. He not only creates the university, uh, the universe and our bodies, uh, but he upholds them and he preserves them. It's who he is. So he's not going to allow the universe to careen into destruction. 
or let humanity disappear off this planet. He is in charge, and the events of the future of humanity and of the universe are in his hands, and right now he's upholding it all. He's also in charge of the governing of events that occur. We know that there's evildoers and evil schemes and evil people, but God ultimately thwarts their ends to show that he is the one in charge. Some of you worry about peace in the Middle East. Have you had five years when there's been peace in the Middle East? There's not a generation I know of that can talk about peace in the Middle East. There has not been peace in the Middle East since the days of Abraham. And that's as far back as we can you know, trace it. We, we have North Korea, Iran, and Cuba who are causing mischief. God will use these governments in their current state to bring people to faith in Jesus. And when God is done with these nations and with these people, they are done. Simple as that. When he's done, they're done. And finally, God is always directing us towards the goal. Directing us towards the goal of bringing honor to his son, Jesus, and bringing people to his son. There is a promise in the prophets that says the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Every knee, as Paul says in Philippians, will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So following Jesus now, I can be involved in the good that he is doing and I can participate in his good work. He is always at work doing good because he is good. So I think Ruth is sort of a model for us here. Just look at the model. What is it that Ruth does that I can do, even though it may be costly to me? First, be obedient to God and what you know you ought to be doing. You ought to be loving him. You ought to be loving others. Be obedient. Second, and this gets dangerous, ask God in a consistent way that you might see his work and that he might use you in it. I'm going to say that again. And if you're not willing, just cross it out. Ask God, prayer, that you might see his work and that you, he might use you in it. The answer to that prayer is yes. I can't tell you what it is, but the answer to that prayer is yes. I can't tell you when it will happen, but it's yes. I can't tell you how, but it's yes. And thirdly, give thanks when God answers your prayers. Because as it happens, it can happen to you. I saw this analogy that just amazed me. Um, and let me just share it because um, I've had a not even a handful of as-it-happens experiences, but everyone has been life-shaping and changed the direction of my life. Uh, but about 21 years ago, um, through a phone call, we just heard of this um, opening here at Bergen Park Church and that there were literally hundreds who were applying for it, even though it was a church of 50 to 100 at the time. Um, and I hang up and I look at Barb, or Barb, maybe heard the, the opening first, and, and we go, hmm, 
wonder where that's going to lead. I wonder who the new pastor is going to be. <laughs> As it happens. That's 1996. 20 years later, Jason hears of an opening. It's a smaller church. We have a few challenges, don't we? But as it happens, he takes time to pray. There's a computer program. There's a transition team. There's a bunch of members that he has to impress. There's a vote to be taken. There's a decision to be made. And as it happens, he's right over here with his family. There are a bunch of as-it-happens experiences that are going on right now. And I believe that in your life, you're going to stop and you're going to give that one thought. Hmm, I wonder what that could mean. As it happens. Father, it's a dangerous thing to read your Bible. And to see three little words that don't make sense. But we understand that it can shape everything in the future. I pray for this congregation, and we'll continue to pray with Barb. And I pray that they would understand the work that you have to do and that you want them to take part in it. Work in this community, work in their homes, work in this church, work throughout the world, that you want them to participate in the work that you're doing. And I pray too for those who are going through a season where they are confused, or maybe even miserable. They cannot figure out, Lord, what in the fat are you doing right now? Because it doesn't look like you're here at all. And I pray you'd give them that constant expectation that you are always working and you are always good. Keep reading. Keep reading. The story ends beautifully and be a part of it. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Let's stand.